again, and welcome to another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, that virtual church classroom podcast presented each week by me, Pastor Dan, on behalf of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. And uh, I have the help of my lovely daughter, Bethany, and we together study the Bible with you with one goal, to know God's heart and mind with all of our heart and mind. Our hope is that through this virtual Bible study that you'll be able to participate more completely in the benefits of an active church life, and uh, we really hope this is a blessing to you, but at the same time, we urge you to please be involved with a local church. Find one. There are all kinds of them out there, and it may take some time to find the one that feels like the church home God had in mind for you, but it's worth the effort. Our psalm reading today is Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on all your people. Selah.
Pray with me, please. Holy, holy, holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you today for your manifold blessings, the things that you do that we take for granted, the many ways in which we are so blessed that we fail to notice simply because we're tempted to think it's our doing. But we thank you now for the roof over our heads, for the food on our plates, for the good health we enjoy, for the many things that make our lives easier than most of the people in the world of your knowing. You look from your heavenly place and you see it all, Lord, and we truly are vain sometimes in our estimation of ourselves and in our trivial complaints. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you that we are so blessed. Now, make us a blessing to others. Help us to join with people of the world whether it be right here in our community or in this nearby uh, state and, and uh, regional realm that we live in, if it be on a national scale, if it be on a global scale, Lord, we want to join with you in whatever you are doing so that our impact on the world is a reflection of your grace and love for your creation. Oh God, we are mindful that those listening include people who are suffering with some sort of sicknesses or some other difficulty in their lives, some financial or or spiritual distress, some sort of uh, social or family problem. Uh, there may be those who are recovering from grave illness or those who are recovering from surgery, those whose lives are near an end and their bodies are weary and their spirits long to be with you in paradise. We join with them all, Lord, in all of our prayers, both those that we know of and those that only you know of. Let no one pray alone today, Lord, because we joined with them where two or more are gathered in your name. We love you, Lord. Amen. So we're currently studying the book of Revelation, and we are recording this one, uh, this study, on uh, April the 5th, 2018. Bethany's here. Say hi, Beth. Hello. So we are looking at the book of Revelation. If you are a newcomer to the podcast, we haven't covered much scripture, so you're okay. Uh <laughs> This is how it goes when we do this Bible study. When you do a deep dive, it, it could you could spend a lot of time on a verse. But, uh, you know, just a refresher for everybody that we are studying the book of Revelation. We're not looking at it, uh, trying to figure out who the next Antichrist is or anything like that. We're just reading it. And as Bethany pointed out last week, it's a beautiful book with beautiful language and imagery. And if you will stop trying to overthink it, you can really appreciate it for its literary form. And uh, maybe you can hear the voice of God more clearly. Now, I, I sounded a little harsh there, though, didn't I, Beth? I, I'm not assuming there's somebody listening to this who's overthought it. But, you know, when you've been at this as long as I have, you start thinking back to all those people you know who really do. And uh, the... One of the things we took away from last week that we'll want to remember as we move forward from this time, uh, this week is that the seven churches that he's writing to were literal 
uh, churches that existed. And uh, if you're part of our Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group, you'll notice that I put up a map that shows you where those churches are. But they're figurative churches, too, in that, and that'll be more clear to us in the scriptures we're going to read tonight, because there's a sense that these churches are sort of a representative group of the churches uh, or the body of Christ, and there are certain phrases that suggest that, and so we're supposed to hear it both in the form that it was written to those churches, but we're also supposed to hear it as though it's written to us and the various churches that we're a part of. So, Bethany, the the next verses that we've got to read start with verse 9, and mm-hmm. you want to set us up for that? Tell us what's getting ready to happen. We're going to meet Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're going to meet Jesus. We're going to meet some Jesus. Yeah. And... Yeah. So, I mean, it's like the beginning of his vision. Mm-hmm. So up until now, it's been more like an introductory letter. Um, but at this point, he's going to start talking about what he saw. Um, and we're going to get the name. I mean, you mentioned that already, but we're, this, at this point, we're going to get the names of who the seven churches are. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to start to get some description of where this is all happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly, yeah, we're going to meet Jesus. Yeah. Um, in in the uh, passages we're getting ready to read, one of the things we want to look for is that we're going to see John's vision of Jesus, his experience of Jesus. I'm a little reluctant to use the word vision just because that might suggest that he was dreaming or hallucinating or something. That's not really mm-hmm. what it means. He's he's having an, an out-of-reality experience, you know, or having an alternate reality experience. He's not necessarily uh, experiencing some sort of, uh, you know, dream. Um, well, and I think that's important what you're saying, too, because, like, even if it is a vision, the Jesus part's not. Jesus, like, showed up to him. Yeah. I don't know if that or not, but, like, even if it was a vision, the part where Jesus is, like, shows up, I think it's, like, it's pretty clear that it, that part's not a vision. Jesus showed up on Patmos. Well, and, and you know, we already then, have an example because... Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul met Jesus the same way on the road to yeah. Damascus. Right. You know, so this isn't unprecedented in that respect. So um, one of the things that, that I think we're going to notice here that's a little subtle, but if you're looking for it, you'll you'll recognize it, is that that in his, in his uh, uh, paragraphs describing his vision of Jesus, he is describing a present reality, which is his conversation with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if we listen carefully, we're also going to hear that he transitions pretty immediately into what we call the church age. And this is kind of where these seven churches in their reality uh, in in Asia Minor, you know, these are the churches that are in the church age. And the church age is basically in scholarship. We mean that that started at 
Pentecost and the church was sort of uh, launched that day. And the church age is what we're living in right now. And the church age ends basically when Christ comes again. And then it's the, well, stuff we're going to read about later, so I'm not going to spoil it. And then there is the after the church age, which is where we're headed with this. So so that's kind of the setup for this. Um, any any uh, special memories of, of last week's lesson that you want to kind of revisit before we move forward? Um, I, uh, the only things that I had jotted down was just like to, to just keep, keep thinking about, and, and then you went and posted on the Facebook page today. So we were obviously thinking the same way. <laughs> keep thinking about who he's, who all this is being said to, because that's about to get a whole lot more. We're about to get a whole lot more information about that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's about all that I had in terms of last week. And, and speaking of the Facebook group, um, I need to point out to people who are only able to participate in this virtual Bible study that it's a kind of a, a meeting room that I use not only for the, the Bible study on, online, but it's also been a place where we kind of carry on the conversation from my Wednesday night Bible study and even some of the sermons and one-on-one and -on -one conversations I have with people. Therefore, mm -hmm. if you should notice that I posted a video of Curly Howard uh, testifying in court <laughs> in a Three Stooges episode. I happen to see that. Yeah, um, that is from the Wednesday night Bible study last, where we were talking about a particular usage of a phrase that Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah Joshua uh, uses to swear in, so to speak, um, Achan before he basically condemns him for dabbling in unholy things. But anyway, we, we were talking about what that phrase means, and we all decided it must be some sort of an oath. And, and then I kind of went off on a tangent and said, oh, kind of like when Curly's testifying, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, not the truth, so help you God, you know, and, and anyway – Everybody thinks Pastor Dan's crazy and silly, and then I went ahead and posted the video just so they'd know exactly what I was visualizing in my mind. But uh, So now they still think you're crazy and silly, but they do have proof that you were not totally nuts. Yeah, my, my silliness is rooted in some sort of reality, you know, right. but, but, uh, but I, I enjoy the fact that, that when I do Bible study, it can cross over into... Uh, three Stooges bits, you know. Well, that's pretty awesome. But I was also thinking that because um, I, you know, I am back in my house, so we're video chatting again. Mm -hmm. But when you first started the <clears throat> Joshua study, I happened to be in town and I went to the first one. And I'm thinking that you said or you pulled from your notes um, that that Joshua and Revelation kind of there's actually a lot of parallels. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I did. So, and so in a, in a sort of weird, you know, see, here's the thing. I, I, I guess this qualifies me as either infested with the Holy spirit or some sort of mad genius. And yet I'm neither, 
I would like to be infested with the Holy Spirit or infilled with it in every way with him, the Holy Spirit. But the reality is, is that that uh, God directs my steps. And I just started, you know, so the fact that I'm doing Revelation online and I'm doing Joshua on campus is kind of an amazing coincidence that only God mm-hmm. could orchestrate because they do parallel and we're moving about as slowly through Joshua as we're going to move <laughs> through this. And this is one of the reasons, because we're not talking about the scripture. So <laughs> why don't you yes. give my voice a rest? And would you please read, um, let's start by reading verses 9 and uh, through 11, and then okay. stop and check in on that. Okay. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are that's that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right. Now, another thing I put in as an afterthought on that Facebook group was a link to some images of the island of Patmos. Mm. Um, It's a little hard to picture it the way it was because um, there are residences there and so forth, but it's really a small island and uh, not much going for it, really. It's, It's a mediterranean island in the you know near greece closer to turkey actually and in proximity to these uh churches um if you go to patmos and sort of radiate out to the east of patmos though that's where those churches are located so um Mm -hmm. so he says he's on patmos patmos is a penal colony um it's uh it's a prison and and it's kind of like those prisons we have in our country for for like white collar criminal prisons you know where uh they're they're not the hardcore michigan city you know scary penitentiaries mm-hmm. they're they're uh they're basically restricted living and and uh and limited living now in no way do i want to suggest that john had it easy but generally, people guilty of the kinds of crimes he was charged with are either executed or they're sent to the mines or something to work themselves to death. And the fact that John is on this island is actually uh, an indication that he might have been popular with the government in, in that at least they didn't want to kill him. And uh, he gets to write letters and things. So... So he's getting about as good a treatment as you can get for a guy who's been sentenced to uh, life on a penal colony on an island, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so that's the first observation. And then uh, uh, I notice that uh, it says he was um, it was on the Lord's day. Yeah. Did you do any research on that? What did you find out? I if didn't you did. do any research i just wrote down that you know it sounds like it was the sabbath 
Yeah, well, and and so that begs the question, which Sabbath? So verse 10 says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me. You know, that phrase, there's a, there's a lot of different interpretations of it. But uh, the two things I want to focus on with that is the Lord's day could have been Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but probably not in John's case because he's pretty thoroughly committed to Jesus now. Mm-hmm. And on the day of resurrection... You know, that was pretty much the indicator that this was the big day now. And, you know, so for Christians, it's Sunday is the Sabbath day. But there's even one uh, uh, kind of obscure uh, note that I read in a commentary that said that that uh, the Romans had a thing they called the Lord's Day. And it was something that happened either monthly or quarterly or something. And, wow. and it was a day dedicated to Caesar. And he is on a Roman colony, penal colony, and it is administered by um, the uh, the Roman, you know, uh, forces that are planted there to take care of people like him. And so this one just suggested that, you know, maybe maybe this was his day off or something. And that's why he had time to just meditate and seek the Lord in his prayer and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and so, that you know, I'm not sure that any of that really matters, but it's just very interesting and uh yeah you know i would argue though i mean obviously it could be an editing thing but i would argue that like i don't know that it would be the caesar thing just because i don't think he would put the same kind of emphasis on that yeah because he's not about caesar yeah and and you know what i would i would agree with you on that i don't think that uh he's really going to to uh go there because he's writing to an audience that doesn't care whether it's Caesar's day or not. And he doesn't care. So, um, main thing is, is that if, and, and let's, okay, so let's just agree that it's Sunday for the moment. So, um, practical application in this is that yes, you can read the book of revelation and actually get the same sort of benefit that you get from other books of the Bible, which is how do I live my Christian life? And, you, you know, I know a lot of people who never look at Revelation that way. But here's a perfect lesson where John is saying, you know, on the Lord's day, I try to really seek the Lord. I devote myself to seeking the Lord on that day. And uh, this time I heard a loud voice like a trumpet that said, write this down, you know. And uh, this is this is pretty cool. Um, this is pretty cool. I kind of. My favorite part of this is be, is when he says that he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Like he he just doesn't hold back on any punches. He's like, yeah, I'm stuck here, and that's okay because it was because I was talking about Jesus. Yeah, and in that respect, <laughs> if if you read the Bible canon, that's the the official uh, order of the books and so forth. Um, in that respect, he's writing just like all the other um, apostles who wrote those various letters and things, you know, Peter and, and mm-hmm. James and all these guys. They all pretty much say the same thing. And Paul was particularly committed to making sure everybody understood that whenever he suffered, it was for the gospel. Yeah. You know, so so John's being very consistent here. And for people who are interested, when we talk about the canon of the Bible, this is the... Uh, I, the, the word canon, I, right now I can't remember. It doesn't mean a big 
big tube that goes boom. It, it's talking about a a uh, uh, a process whereby the church's officials long ago decided what criteria these various writings had to meet in order to be considered part of God's word for the people. And so there was an official uh, inquiry into all the various literature that was out there in uh, relation to Jesus, relation to the Christian journey in and, uh, you know, even this Jewish scholarship of what we call the Old Testament was scrutinized. And so this is what we call the canon. And well, this is, I got a definition if you want. Go for it. I got a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine or a general law, rule, principle, or criterion by which something is judged. Okay. Awesome. And so the church being the church, meaning that... Uh, in the earliest days of the church, you know, it's funny, we're all pretty committed to our various denominational differences and the difference between Catholics and Protestants and uh, Catholics and the Orthodox and everything. And yet, when the church was somewhat unified, that's when some of the most important things for all Christians for all time happened, like the establishment of what the Bible is and how a book gets in and how a book stays out. And uh, so it's really fascinating stuff. Um, it'd be you know, again, this would be one of those cases where we'd refer people back to the Christian Believer series because one of the lessons was on the Bible and how it came to be. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're interested in that, that's where we go. And so uh, he hears a voice at this point. We don't know who it is, but this voice wants him to write things down and he names these churches and uh, I want to do something that I teased you about last week. I want to rush ahead, but I think we need to go ahead. Do you want to uh, you want to add anything or whatever to this this um, nine through eleven? I don't know if anyone cares or is interested or if this is the time I should wait till chapter two. But I, you know, I I kind of like history and stuff, and so. <clears throat> When I was doing my reading last week, I went and just like looked up each of the cities mm -hmm. and kind of found out a little bit about them. Not a lot, but just like a little about each one. Well, go for it. Do you want me to say that stuff? Well, now? sure. Okay. This is where we meet them first. So let's get the background. <laughs> now, I. So, okay, I take it back. Technically, I didn't look up stuff about all of them yet because I was doing this based on Chapter 2, so I only looked up information on the first four, so I can tell you about those. Well, go ahead. Okay. So, Ephesus, which, you know, Ephesians and stuff, uh, Ephesus has been mentioned in the Bible before kind of kind of a big city um and it didn't take much to find information about it so it it was like the commercial hub of asia minor and asia minor is basically turkey um right. modern day turkey um and it makes sense because if you look at a map like the one that you put on facebook it's a port city um so it was a big hub uh and it was also where John was headquartered before he was at Patmos, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know that that means that that church in Ephesus 
I mean, I would assume that they had some ties to John if he was hub there, but um, so I thought that was interesting. And then it said that it was also a hub for the Temple of Diana, um, who is the Roman like hunting goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, Artemis, I guess, is the Greek equivalent. Um, but it was it was the hub for her. So there was also quite a bit of um, pagan worship going on in that city. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Smyrna was another one that was a commercial city, which makes sense again, because it's not totally coastal, but it's not far from Ephesus at all. Um, and it was definitely a participant in, in emperor worship. That was the big thing I found about that one is that they were allied with Rome definitely. And they were definitely a, like they were buddy, buddy with the emperor. Hmm. Um, and it didn't really give a reason why it just said they were definitely buds. Okay. Um, Pergamum was the official center for the Imperial cult. Hmm. Which I did not know, and I thought that was very interesting. And I'm not going to explain lots of stuff about the imperial cult because that is a whole other thing. Um, but it, that that has a lot to do with emperor worship too. Um, and it was the center for Zeus. It was the center for Minerva, which would be Athena. Uh, Dionysus, who I kind of jokingly think of as the party god. <laughs> Um, cause he's all about drinking and stuff and, uh, yeah, other stuff. Um, and it, <laughs> I hear you snicker. Family broadcast. I know. That's why I said other stuff. <laughs> um, and it was also the hub. Um, and I, I can't say his name. I need Katie. Um, the, the, the demigod that's like the, you know, the medicine, the rock. Oh, Hippocrates. No. No? No. Everybody gets it wrong. Oh, well. It's... Including me, apparently. I can't... It's like Asclepius or... I don't know how to say it. It's a hard one. Um, Well, but everybody gets it wrong because they call... Um, they they always say that the rod, the medicine, like that rod. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or whatever. They, they always think that it's like the same symbol as Hermes with the snakes and stuff, but it's actually a different symbol. It's this guy's symbol. Okay. Um, I, I, this is familiar to me, but I still yeah. don't know how to say his name. I don't know how to say it either. It's it's a weird one. Um, but but he his worship was hubbed there too, which I thought was kind of interesting because that's, you know, medicine. Hmm. Um, so Pergamum was a big deal for Roman god worship. Yeah. Um, and then Thyatira, the only thing I found on it was that it was a trading center, but it was originally a military outpost. Hmm. And it is like, e- like even at that point in history, it had changed hands several times um, because of its position. Um, which again, like if you look at the map, kind of makes sense um well now historically in scripture whenever you have places like that um you you and i have been to um uh i just went blank the place with the tunnel um megiddo yeah 
tell Megiddo. Yeah. We, we've been there and it changed hands over and over and over again. Yeah. Consequently, every time they excavate, they find a new altar to a yet another God. Yes. And, and of course, all of that has sort of a residual effect because if there's one thing that invading armies do is leave behind a lot of babies yeah. and, and that creates a culture and, and a, and a pagan culture as a rule. So, so you could say that maybe that is one of the sort of hidden intricacies that, uh, that comes out of your research. So, mm-hmm. well, okay. So, um, even though our listeners have given us permission to go long, uh, longer than we thought, we still better keep moving here because yes. I'm, I'm committed to getting all the way through the end of the chapter tonight. Um, so let's, uh, you want to read 12 through 16? Sure. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like a bronze, were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Hmm. Did I say we're going to finish this chapter today? Oh, boy. This could be a little tricky. Um, uh-huh. So... So basically, he sees seven golden lampstands. Um, yep. A lampstand is uh, a uh, real common image in Judaism, and it refers to something like a menorah, we'll say. Um, and seven is a number in Scripture that is considered complete. So seven is like... You know, it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. Basically, God was finished after he did seven, you know, six days worth of work and rested on the seventh. So seven's always considered the best number for anything and the most complete number. And uh, I read a commentary today that said, basically, the lampstand sort of represents the eternal nature of the seven churches. So we've got the literal churches and each with its unique personality that seems to be a great cross-section of all the churches that exist today. And I don't mean like Shiloh as much as the types of Christians there are. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, this heptatic seven structure is, is just all over the Bible and especially in Revelation. Um, it's really interesting because I heard when I was in grade school that there are seven basic plots. Can you believe that? Seven. <laughs> Seven basic plots, and they're all in Scripture. Yeah. And that means that in in your episode of NCIS or your episode of Doctor Who or your opera or your stage play uh, or your radio show, it doesn't matter that any kind of story, read a novel, anything, there are basically seven plots. And the skill of the artist who creates these stories and things is that they are able to you know, intermingle the different plots and you could have a variety of plots going on and you could take a twist or something. But anyway, this is interesting because there are seven types of churches or seven types of Christianity or Christians or something, 
represented in these seven churches, like there are seven plots. And we have a lampstand with seven uh, candle holders on it, basically. And the light is the, the word of God. You know, it's always considered the light or the spirit of God. And so now all of a sudden these what we've heard is, is that that he is told to write to the seven churches, but he's also seeing an image of the seven churches in a global sense, like the capital C church. That was the commentary I read. And I like are that. Saying, are you saying that the commentary is is saying that the seven stars? Right. Are the churches? Yeah, that, that there is a a uh, uh, eternal sort of uh, look to it. Like, like you know, when, when you look at candlelight uh, as it's filmed with a camera, it looks like a star, doesn't it? And so when he says he's looking at this, this uh, candelabra, basically, and he sees a lampstand with seven stems on it and seven stars, what's he seeing? You know, the light. Um, that would be my argument that, that you know, again, yeah. this is a guy who's never seen anything like what he's seeing, trying right. to describe it. And he's got the help of the Lord. He's got everything he needs to make sure that it transcends time. But... If when I hear somebody say that he saw a lampstand and saw seven stars on each of the stems, I think, yeah, you know, seven points of light. Well, see, I was over here just like taking it really literally and thinking that Jesus is family friendly. Jesus is super cool because <laughs> he's holding seven stars in his hand. Like, that's really. Well, yeah. Like, really awesome. Well, and, and whether I'm right or wrong, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is super cool. And uh, the the interesting thing is, is that, it, and part of it is, you know, when I, I like doing this, taking it sentence by sentence, but we have to be really careful not to get so deep in the sentence that we forget the context. He's, he's seeing the Lord Jesus, who's got a message for him and here's Jesus standing there and his hair is like wool. And, and, and again, that's sort of a metaphor. Um, it, when he says it's white, like wool, what he's saying is, is that his hair is sort of white with tinges of gray in it. And this is to suggest the wisdom of the ages and so forth. He's got this so gold. Like that classic picture of God, right? Yeah. Like, big woolly beard and white hair and yeah and and so everything that's being described here is is painting a picture and and john is describing what he's seeing but he's also describing it in the sort of metaphorical terms that people are accustomed to in those days so he says something like the son of man well jesus referred to himself as the son of man like 80 times in the gospels yeah. And it was a phrase that meant the son of God, that, that he's, he's a son of man uh, in the sense that he is the, the, the son of, of humankind, you know, that he's, he's the essence of humanity as created by God. It's, it's kind yeah. of a, that's a terrible translation, but that's, you know, that son of man phrase means I'm, I'm referring to myself as as God in the flesh, the son of God. And so then he says he's got hair 
on his head that was white like wool and white as snow. And that's meant to imply, you know, the the idea, you know, believe it or not, it, in uh, in Jewish culture, even to this day, old age is revered. It's only in our sort of Greek-like culture or Roman-like culture that we view old age as a as a weakness and we want to cast off our old. And right here, John in verse 14 is celebrating that because he looks old, he is the wisest and and uh you know therefore the sage of all time you know that that's the idea his eyes are blazing like fire i mean what a concept he's he's you know piercing gaze can i tell you my totally left field interpretation well go for it because i you know there might be somebody out there like you (laughs) so i was reading this and kind of like taking the whole thing together and to me it almost sounds like it like like he says the hair white like wool and as white as snow and stuff and the eyes like a blazing fire and i'm reading it and i'm picturing like yeah he's saying the hair thing but he's talking about how white everything is plus he's talking about how his feet are like look like they're glowing in a furnace and yeah that his face is shining like the sun. So in my brain, I'm picturing like the human torch on steroids. Yeah. No, no, I, I get you. I was even like, talking about how white it is. And like, I'm thinking like white hot flame. Like he's, I don't know. Like, like he's like legitimately glowing yeah. to the point looking like he's just on fire, but he still looks like in the shape of, a human. I don't know. That's that's kind of where all right. Going. Well, like, wow, he, he looks like the sun. If we're gonna go there, then here's what I think. All right, I hadn't talked about the glowing parts. I was gonna get to that. Sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. Imagine that you are in a dimly lit room, and it's bright and sunny outside, and someone comes in from outside, and they're standing in the doorway you see them almost as a silhouette and the light is just blazing around them. Like an outline. Yeah. Yeah. And if the light was intense enough, you'd still be able to make out all their features because there'd be enough ambient light from the source to light their dark side enough that you could see that. Now imagine that a portal between the fabric of our space and time and the timeless area where Jesus dwells with the father mm-hmm. opens and there stands the Lord in the opening. And every time we hear a description of the space between our space and time and the space where Jesus is opening, Moses sees a burning bush, but it's not consumed by fire. He sees right. He sees a hole in space and time. Um, When they go to the Mount of Transfiguration, they see a hole in space and time where the timeless Lord is reaching through, so to speak, to tell, you know, to talk with Jesus. And Um, Moses comes back with that sunburn. Yeah. And then you, yeah, that's right. And then you have... Uh, on the birth of Christ, when there is this star that is always present over him wherever he is, um, and it's the brightest star anybody's ever seen, and yep. and it's been described as a comet, it's been described as all sorts of things. 
I personally think it's a hole in space and time that God opens and during Jesus' most vulnerable period, which is when he's about to be born and he's an infant, they've literally opened up a, uh, a portal in heaven to the earth, so to speak, uh, so they can keep an eye on him, you know. And so this thing is always appearing over Jesus like a star. Um, when Jesus is uh, uh, represented any time in his holiest form, he's always described as being white as snow, bright, so bright like lightning. So. Yeah. Then you have this sound distortion. His voice sounds like, you know, rolling thunder and rivers and streams and everything. I'm going to go away out on a limb here and say that I think that what John is witnessing is he's sitting on his island, minding his own business. The last time he looked over his shoulder, he saw the gradual incline of the hillside he was sitting on, and it disappeared into the blue sky beyond and the clouds beyond that. And somewhere on the other side of that hill is the slope going down to the water on the other side of the island. And then he turns and looks, and instead of seeing that, he sees this bright, huge, incredibly intense light that is yeah. like someone opening a door into your basement on a bright, sunny day. Uh-huh. And Jesus is standing in the opening, and John is making out what he sees with the light of God's dwelling place just burning around his fringes so his feet look like they're on fire because he's standing in the doorway and this light from heaven is shining through his hair looks like it's sort of a flame because he's standing in this doorway um so there's there's my completely off the wall explanation it's not jesus that's burning uh it's not jesus who's glowing it's really the environment that he's standing in between well, and not to jump ahead or anything, but when you hear the description of the throne room, which, like, I'm going to say that if he's standing in the doorway between places, the throne room's probably kind of what's backlighting him. Exactly. That That's what I'm and driving you, at. Yeah. And when you read the description of that place, it is definitely bright. Yeah. Like, like real bright. And throughout the Bible, there's this constant theme of darkness and light. Yeah. And God is the source of light and darkness is what happens where it's evil, you know, and, and I mean, that's a really, you know, super short. But but so light is always a sign of God's presence an intense light. And so I don't think that his picture of Jesus is in any way changed by what I'm saying. He still looks like his resurrected, complete king of everything self and there are images in there like the golden sash for example that want us to understand that we're seeing the master of the universe who very well could hold seven stars in his hand you know um and so there's no missing that but what i think is interesting is is that some of the descriptions of the tactile things could be explained simply by the fact that that you know Jesus's voice is being affected by the the fact that he's standing in the doorway between space and time and God's reality, you know, mm-hmm. and and so it's just fascinating to me because because I'm willing to go there and and some people are going to hear this and they're going to go, oh, man, I, I don't like the way that sounds. But 
everything science discovers, whether scientists believe it or not, is God revealed. Yep. And so for me to say, you know, now in this age, we understand that that there's an awful lot about our our existence that is sort of an illusion that time and space is it, we're almost like in a in a bubble, you know, and, and that reality is outside the bubble, you yeah. know. So this gets into some really heavy, you know, kind of theoretical stuff. But 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 again, I'm convinced that anything that becomes undeniably true, even if it comes from the scientific world, is still God's truth. Mm-hmm. And so when I start exploring with the possibilities here, that's where I'm going with it. So so, yeah, I think, you know, this voice that sounds like rushing waters, I guess that would be like if I were, you know, you were inside your house and I were standing in the doorway or just outside the doorway, let's say, and I'm talking to you. But on my side, the wind's blowing in the trees, the birds are singing. Um, you know, there's all this noise and activity going on outside the house. I'm standing just outside your door talking to you from there into your basement or your house where you're sitting, uh, you know, several feet away in a relative isolation. My voice sounds distorted. It doesn't sound the same as if I'm sitting next to you in your house. Mm-hmm. Just something to think about. And uh, so let's, let's, okay, you ready? I Did you have anything else you want to say about that? Can I just... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. So this, I, I feel like this is terrible, but um, I, I get a little chuckle out of the fact that apparently Jesus is a sword swallower. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's super cool, again, because he's Jesus and he's just pulling a sword out of his mouth, but that's a weird image, too. Um, and I guess I, I don't know what's going on with that one. Okay. So... Tell me, sir. In the right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in it. I think that what I think that what John was seeing again was the play of light, and huh? I think what he was seeing looked to him like a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. However. I want to make this really clear to, to everyone, including myself. While I can explain in my own way what I think John saw, John, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us important things about Jesus that we need to know. And so this is where the beautiful literary style comes into play. He's describing unbelievable things that he's seeing for the first time in his existence the best he can for our benefit, but he's also trying to tell us something about the Lord too. And so he sees what I think was light, not so much a real sword. And he describes it though, as a double-edged sword. And that may very well be because the way the light played, it looked like it was tapering in two different directions as it's coming out of his mouth. But I also think that he wants us to hear this because it's going to come back in later. And the reason I say that is is because he says at verse uh, 18, this last part of verse 18, he says, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. And so he's basically describing life and death 
a double-edged sword, you know. So, so John is is describing things for us the best way he can, but he's also crafting metaphor. And actually, Jesus is the one crafting it because John's describing it, but Jesus is the one who's speaking. So, why don't you read verses seventeen through uh, twenty, and then I think we might be able to tie this up. Okay. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. All right, stop. Two-edged sword. I don't be afraid. I'm first and last. I'm living, and I have power over death. So, you know. I, the death and Hades thing I wrote down, though, because I think that's kind of interesting because it sounds like double talk, but I don't know that it is. Because if you know Greek mythology, Roman mythology, if you don't know it, then when you hear Hades, people tend to just think death. But technically, he was... He was... that Like, that was what he was the god of, but technically, he was like... He was more like the gatekeeper, like, like he made he he was the guy that kind of made the judgment about whether people were worthy to go to the nice place that they had. In the right. Nice so I don't know that it is double talk saying death and Hades, but I don't know whether it, there's more depth to it or if it's just a translation thing because it was translated out of the Greek. Right. So, I follow you. Okay. Just, it doesn't really matter. But. Well, and, and again, Jesus is saying, you know, life and death. I was alive. I was dead. I'm alive again. You know, he's, he says, I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Now look at me. I'm alive. And, and forever and ever is twice. Uh, I hold the keys to death and Hades, and Hades is the word they've used as translated because this was probably first translated from whatever language John wrote it in to Greek, and uh, he may have written it in Greek. I'm just not ready to answer that now because I don't recall. But uh, so Hades would be the word they pick, and and so what's he saying? You know, death is one thing. Death is is not only in in. In the Bible, death is not just about the death of the flesh. It's really about the death of the soul. Right. And, and so he's talking about death in a literal sense, the end of existence. But he's also talking about hell or, you know, the judgment. And, and so, so he's juxtaposing with a two-edged sword almost. You know, he's saying that, that his word cuts both ways. Well... And interestingly, my Bible sends me back into Luke for a note, and it says, so it says hell, and then it says, or Greek, Hades. Right. So it's... Yeah. Which, which I know I, you know a little bit more than I do about the Greek mythology and everything, so that kind of makes it tempting to... contentious there, but it's yeah. okay. We can keep moving. Well, I'm I'm watching our time here, so let's go. Now, I I mentioned verse 19 when we got started. Yes. Which says, "Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. What is 
that what is it he's seen? He's seeing a vision of Jesus, and he's descri- he's describing how he encountered Jesus that day. And then he talks about those seven churches that existed then. So that's what is now. And mm-hmm. then he starts talking about what will take place later. And that is the metaphor of the lampstand and the lights, which is the church through the ages in the age of the church. So it's kind of interesting. He says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands in is this. So he's he's answering the question. And it means that what I thought isn't exactly true. But then I didn't, you know. Anyway, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the what will be. This is the direction that uh, it's going. Do you still have your notes that you shared from last week where you were talking about the seven uh, sort of characteristics? Because um, here's where those angels come into play. And this is a good place to wrap. Um, are you talking about the spirits? Yeah. I don't have the notes, but I can try to, um, look up the... Well, in last week's episode, which I listened to right before we started today so that there'd be some continuity, you were describing how, um, those were each certain qualities. Um, do you remember that? Yeah. It was like wisdom and... Oh, I can look it back up. Well, that's all right. So, okay. so folks, listen to last week if you don't know what we're talking about because Bethany said it. So these seven spirits. Now, now I'd like to talk about that more next week. And so let's try to remember to open with that, the seven spirits, because there's a lot more to that. Um, and I don't think we can try to do it justice when I'm trying to watch the clock here. So... Um, so let's just say that Jesus has just explained that the seven stars represent something that is supernatural and transcendent, uh, that is an equal partner with the church, you know, so the church is an earthly expression of Christ and we're part of that expression in the flesh within time and space as we understand it. And yet he's saying each church or each type of church is also, uh, sort of given uh, uh, oversight and partnership with something from where he now dwells outside of space and time. Kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on this? Um, I don't think so. Get ready, though, because I am pumped about the next part. She's been waiting for two weeks to tell you about Chapter 2, folks. I am read up about the churches. All right. Well, uh, so we're going we're gonna to close this discussion for now. And, uh, Bethany, uh, why don't you tell everybody why it's so important to be part of that uh, Facebook group and uh, join in the conversation? Well, I, because it just makes it more fun. Interaction is more fun. And um, it's really nice to know that it's not just me and dad out there. Um, plus, it's just nice because this is a podcast. So this is audio based. 
Um, and, you know, we're talking about maps and we're talking about where things are and stuff like that. And if you're on the Facebook page, we're sharing things so that you can get some visuals to go along with what we're talking about. Um, and it's not just us sharing things. For the most part, it's been us sharing things, but um, people are actively participating and sharing their thoughts on different things. And that's really awesome because it helps guide what we're doing and it kind of it helps us know what need, what maybe we need to take more time explaining and things like that. Yep. So. All right. We'll um, do that. We got to wrap with that. We are, we are uh, out of time. So uh, thank you, Bethany. I love you. It's always fun to do this with you and, and uh, looking forward to doing more live ones in the studio, so to speak. But uh, <laughs> tell everybody bye. Bye. See you next week or hear you next week. Talk to you <laughs> next week. Bye, Beth. As with most prophetic writing, and really I think all prophetic writing in the Bible, there's a dualism. The author is writing to an immediate situation and receiving God's aid in giving answers to those for whom the author feels responsible. And uh, so he's writing to these seven churches that literally exist. And as you heard from Bethany, they were all uh, being pervaded with this call to emperor worship or the emperor cult. And so John wants them to know that Jesus is the mighty one and that he cares about their problems and he's standing in the gap. He's standing for them. And uh, he wants them to be firm in the face of persecution. And yet there is also this eternal message and uh, prophetic message of things to come. And the thing to remember about prophecy is, is that it's always meant to be a proof after the fact of God's presence in it. In other words, it's not like scary predictions. It is a statement of, of uh, pre-warning or pre-advising you of what to look for. And in that way, you know when it's happening that it is as God has ordered it and as God expected it to be. So this is another way that the prophecy is to benefit us in the same way it was to benefit those churches in the day of John. It is a reminder to us that none of this comes as a surprise to God and that God is already on top of it and that in the end God wins. So with that in mind, uh, I'd like to give you a little assignment for next week. Um, remember that God has told you that he's going to destroy Satan and his works that oppose you and God. So do your actions in your living prove that you believe that? And if you have any doubts about God's sovereignty over everything, go back and read Job 37, verse 23, Ezekiel 6, 14, Daniel 4, 25, Jude chapter 4, Revelation 19, 16. Well, there's your assignments for this week. about it for this week's study. We hope you've been blessed. Please send us your comments and questions. The best way to join the conversation 
is on the Facebook page, uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church, and our uh, Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. You can uh, also get a hold of us by visiting shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot O-R-G. If you're in Jasper, Indiana or southwest Indiana, come by and see us at Shiloh United Methodist Church and say hello. I'd be glad to meet you face to face. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Goodbye.